This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Making the most of now. Young women in Otatahi Christchurch, New Zealand, talk about living through the earthquakes, the mosque shootings, and the COVID-19 pandemic. These oral histories were recorded by Louise Tapper and Rosemary Duplice. Thanks to the Christchurch branch of the National Council of Women, the Collaborative Trust, and UC Quake Studies. Nina, a 27-year-old retail manager, talks to us today. Can you tell me a bit about your current situation mm-hmm. at the moment? So my current situation is I am working in full-time employment in a retail store. Um, I am an assistant manager and I am happily married, living out in Lincoln, and we've got a good friend of ours who also lives with us and two pets. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about your pets? Uh, I've got a dog called Gus. He is a German shorthead pointer crossed with a chocolate lab, so very energetic, very boisterous. Um, And we've got a cat called Alfred who is, we thought he was supposed to be Persian, word to the wise, don't trust trade me, <laughs> um, but he's more of a mutt, so he's a mixed breed, but definitely part Persian. Right. Yeah. And how long have you been living out at Lincoln? Um, coming up two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And your flatmate has been with you during He's... No, he actually joined us last year, just before Christmas. Actually, he got kicked out of his previous flat. Um, so it was supposed to be a temporary thing, and then obviously COVID happened, and so he's just been with us. So he was part of your COVID bubble. Yeah, he was yes. part of our bubble, yeah. Yes. Okay, anything else about your life at the moment that's important? Um, not really. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, it's just work and home, I guess. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, and you're working full-time, mm-hmm. and can you tell us a bit about the days you work and... Yeah, so I work Sunday to Thursday. Um, I work about 43 and a half hours a week. Um, So Sundays through to Wednesday, I'm starting at 8 and finishing at 6. Wednesday, I do finish early because on Thursday, I work a late night. So I work 12 till 9 on a Thursday instead. A long day. Yeah, very long days. (laughs) Good, thank you. That's sort of set the scene for now. Can you... Take us back a bit in time mm-hmm. and go back to what you remember most about the time of the Canterbury earthquakes. Yeah, so that was 10 years ago. So I was 18. I was actually living on Wellington at the time. Um, I was home for the September earthquake. So I was here for the first earthquake. Um, and I remember... I'd actually gone, the day before, we'd actually gone to a super rugby game and I was with my dad and we'd gotten home and then obviously the earthquake happened that night and so it was probably one of the rare times that actually my entire family was actually together. So it was my mum, my dad and my two sisters. My brother lives in Australia so he wasn't there. Um, And then I remember the February earthquake, I was actually in Wellington, I was with a couple of really good friends of mine who I've known since I was a kid. And we were at a cafe and we were just doing what you do with a 19-year-old, I guess. 
And um, I think I got a message from my sister who was living in Palmerston North at the time saying, have you seen the news? And I said, no, what's happened? She said, there's been another big earthquake in Christchurch. Um, so I told my friends and I was like, I need to go to a TV. I need to see what's happening. Um, and then I distinctly remember, so one of my other good friends who was actually in Christchurch for the September earthquake, she was the only um, friend of mine from Christchurch who was actually here for it. And she called me and she said, come to, come to our flat. She's like, come be with us. We're like... I think you'll feel a bit safer because all of us were from Christchurch, all of our families still lived in Christchurch. So um, I went to her place and I just lost it. I just cried. I just pulled my eyes out because I hated it because I couldn't get a hold of my dad. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. So I hated it. <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant time. Yeah. So what happened after that? When did you come, did you come back to Christchurch? I'm trying to think when I came back. So that was my second year of university and I had actually... I think the next time I went home was probably, must have been the mid-year break, so it must have been like June, July that I came back home. Um, and I think that's when I actually decided, I started to think about actually moving back home to Christchurch, um, which was obviously a bit crazy because everybody was moving out. Um, I don't, to be honest, I actually don't remember much about coming back home I think the only thing I remember would have been so towards the end of that year I was actually working two jobs and I was also studying law <laughs> so it was a pretty just hectic year just in general um, but I remember I made the decision I was like no nah, I'm gonna move home something happened at one of my jobs and I was like no nah, I can't do it I need to go home I can't be here in Wellington anymore I need to be around my family I need to be with that and I think especially having experienced the September earthquake and then and then to be honest, I actually, yeah, I actually came back on the June and there was another earthquake in June. <laughs> I was in the air, I was actually about to land before the earthquake happened. Um, so I literally had experienced every single earthquake apart from the February one. But yeah, I definitely remember just being like, no, nah, I'm coming home. And I called my mum and I said to her, I was like, I want to come home. She's like, okay, we'll get you sorted and we'll get you home. That's, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing that I remember. Yeah. So... When did you actually come back to Christchurch? When did you leave Wellington? Was it over that Christmas period? Yes, so it would probably have been, I officially left Wellington, it must have been a week before Christmas, actually, yeah, and I just came back home. My grandparents picked me up from my flat and helped me pack all my things, and I flew home and they drew, drove down yeah, with all my stuff, which is very kind of them. Um, and then, yeah, then I've been here ever since, actually. So what did that mean for your studies? You were at Vic, you were studying yeah. law. Could you tell me a bit about mm -hmm. your study plans, your enrolment, your shifting from one university um, to another? To be honest, it was actually quite a painful experience. I don't, <laughs> it wasn't, a, it was more um, Victoria University rather than Canterbury. Canterbury was really great. Um, Victoria University actually lost my transcript twice. Um, and then... Uh, so I was I was actually pushing it to actually enrol in time. Um, after yeah, I think it was actually pretty relatively easy. I remember before I left, I went and talked to somebody at Victoria and was like, "How do I, how do I move? <laughs> like I'm moving back home and going to Christchurch and I want to finish my degree." Um, I decided not to continue with law, a because my grades weren't good enough, but b it was just something I was like, 
I think after everything happened, I was kind of pretty ready to wrap up my study. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just remember, yeah, Victoria was particularly difficult to deal with just in terms of getting information from. Um, I remember UC contacted me and was like, we're needing this, this and this. And I was like, well, I've been told Victoria had sent this, this and this. And they're like, we haven't received it. And I was, um, I think I officially got enrolled a week before I was supposed to start. And I think um, the biggest thing was, so at Victoria, I didn't have to declare a minor until my final year. And basically, it's whatever papers you had that they could kind of um, make your minor. But here, I had to declare a minor, especially because I was going into my final year of study. And obviously, that wasn't something I had thought about. <laughs> Thankfully, I did pretty well on my sociology paper on my first year of uni. So they're like, oh, look, we're happy to push you right through. You can just do 300 level papers. But yeah, Victoria was particularly difficult to deal with in terms of that transition period. So Canterbury was good about it, mm -hmm. and so what did you study? You had two years at VET, what yeah. did you study in yeah. your final? Yeah, so throughout the entire time, throughout all of my study, I was just studying media studies. Um, here they don't call it media studies, they call it mass communications. So that was just an instant like-for-like -like swap over, and then I did a minor in sociology. Yeah, so I've got a Bachelor of Arts in mass communications with a minor in sociology. So you were happy about that. You made the transition, really. Coming uh, back here was prompted by the quakes here? Or what yes. Did you family? Yeah. I think the quakes kind of made me reevaluate what I was doing. Um, I'm a big family person, and I think the big thing for me was I was in a particularly healthy environment in terms of in my flatting situation. I wasn't particularly enjoying it, um, which was really hard because I obviously had I'm from Wellington, so I had all of my good friends there. Like I felt, and I probably struggled a lot throughout the year, just in general. Um, so the decision to come home was definitely, I think, it was a decision that was inevitable. But I think having being away for that February earthquake, it definitely prompted me to be home. I just wanted to be around my family. I just needed that safety and that security, and I just needed to be home. And so, what was it like living in? Christchurch as a post-earthquake city as um, you went into 2012? Um, it was an interesting time to be honest because obviously not being from here I don't have any particular attachments to anything. I think the biggest thing that I always struggled with was the fact that landmarks were gone so any type of way to navigate my way through town I you had no idea where anything was. I couldn't pinpoint like where it was geographically, so I did get lost quite a lot. Um, but I think the other thing that I probably found really hard was because all of my friends were still in Wellington. So in terms of that adjustment period, in terms of breaking into new groups, and especially starting like your final year at uni, all of these people have had, like they've lived in halls or they're flattered or they've been part of groups since the start. It was kind of a hard time to kind of break into that. Um, but I was fortunate, one of my other good friends who was actually here for the September earthquakes, she made the decision to actually drop out of university and come back home. <laughs> so she ended up coming home um, about three, four months after I moved <laughs> back. So I had so I had somebody here who I felt quite like I was thankful to have her there. Yeah. And so you also experienced not so much the big earthquakes, but mm -hmm. the shocks over that time. Yeah. I don't know, it was kind of one of those weird things that you just started to get, it just became normalised quite quickly. It was, 
Um, I think especially growing up in Wellington where we experienced a lot of earthquakes growing up, but for me it wasn't something that was particularly unfamiliar. I think um, the aftershocks and things like that, I started to question whether it was just a truck driving past or was it a train or was it something rather than an actual aftershock. Um, but yeah, I think it just became normal. It was just something you kind of dealt with and you also kind of started to know what was actually a serious aftershock or what wasn't. Mm. Good. So anything else about the quakes before we move on to more recent history, which is a little bit about the mosque shootings and what you remember about them? Um, no, not that I can think of. No, good. Yeah. So the mosque shootings mm -hmm. last year, mm -hmm. what are your you know, memories of that time as um, another challenge for Christchurch? Yeah, yeah, so I was in a different job um, to what I was in now um, and I distinctly remember these two women came into the store and they said there's a police chase happening. And me and the girl that I was working with, we were like, what? what? They're like, there's been shootings. And we were like, I, we thought they were joking. We were like, no, they can't be right. So we immediately went onto the computer and like searched and we was like, there's been a massive shooting. Um, they're trying to track down the person. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. I was like, this, like, it felt really surreal. It wasn't something that you kind of expect to happen in New Zealand, let alone Christchurch. Um, and I think my instinct was to immediately contact my family. Um, so that also included my husband. I was like, are you okay? Like, where are you? Um, do you know what's happening? And then I was also contacting my parents and I was like, well, what do we do? Like, where do we go? Like, um, but because we were in a mall, we were kind of a little bit limited in terms of what control we had. Um, I think the other big thing was our head office was based in Napier. They had no idea what was going on. And so I had to call them being like, hey, there's actually been a mass shooting in Christchurch. What do you want us to do? <laughs> I guess because it's really unprecedented. It's not something you expect. And they were like, oh my God, are you guys okay? Just follow instructions, do what you have to, and just let us know that you're safe. And I was like, okay. And then like the more management came and they said, if you want to go, go now. And we're like, sweet. So we locked up, left, um, and then I came home and immediately the first thing I did when I got home I was in a FaceTime conversation with both of my sisters my brother and my mum and obviously my mum and I were the only ones that lived in lived in Christchurch so we were the only two that were actually here now like what's going on and I think having living out in Lincoln it was quite um I distinctly remember there was cops outside the university with guns and I think for me that was kind of like the closest I kind of got to it and being like, oh my God, this is actually real. This is serious. And I just had to wait for my husband to get home because I was like, I, I literally locked everything. I shut everything in the house and I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I don't want to do anything. Um, but yeah, that's distinctly what I remember that day. Yeah. That sounds quite scary. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't a, a, a great day, <laughs> no. So anything else you remember about that time in the couple of weeks that followed and more information became available? Yeah, I think um, one of the big things that I remember was, so the 
following day, they wanted us to go into work. I personally didn't feel comfortable going into work because where I worked, so I worked in the tannery at that point, and that's actually around the corner from the second mosque that he went to go attack. Um, and I remember I drove to my parents' house and my mum took me to work actually. And I said, I was like, I don't want to go. I don't feel safe. I don't think it's appropriate for us to even be open, let alone trading. Um, and I remember I called work and I was just in tears because we'd actually also found out that one of my dad's friends had actually been shot in the shootings um, and he, he passed away. And so it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I just want to be around my family. It's, I don't think it's appropriate for me to be here trying to sell clothes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, I, and they were like, okay, that's fine, but you'll have to open on Sunday. And I said, okay, but that's a decision that my team should get to make. I don't think that's a decision that you should get to make. You're not here. You don't know what's going on. I was like, there's a massive amount of police presence. I was like, there's, we're around the corner from a cordon. I said, two of my staff members are actually living in a cordon zone. I was like, so we might not be able to. So I just remember, yeah, it was kind of a, um, it was kind of a weird time kind of adjusting after that. And I think seeing that heavy presence of um, police and things like that as well was kind of the biggest things to come from that. So when did things get back to normal after those shootings? Um, I don't know if you could ever say it went back to normal because I think everybody was kind of hyper aware and I think as somebody who lived through the earthquakes as well, it was kind of something else that Christchurch had to relive and kind of prepare themselves again. I think we'd just got into a place where, like, as a city, I think everybody was quite comfortable. And then it kind of just shook everybody. And it was it was really bizarre. Like, and obviously in my line of work, you're talking to people every day and people are very open. <laughs> and you'll be surprised what people will share with you. But um, a lot of people were just like, it feels like Christchurch has just gone back to what it was like after the February earthquakes. It was silent. It was just nobody wanted to go anywhere. Nobody felt safe to come out. Nobody was sure of what was happening. And I think, um, so my husband has a firearms license and he has guns. He doesn't have them in the house because we don't have a safe. His dad has them in Timaru. But that was probably towards the end where I started to feel a bit more comfortable, I guess, with everything, when he took in the guns that he had to get swapped and for cash and things like that. So I think once that kind of happened and once you saw, like, the police force die down and stuff like that, it, it, it got back to the new normal. A new normal, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is what it was, I guess. <laughs> so in terms of your husband mm -hmm. having firearms license and mm -hmm. having firearms that mm -hmm. were recalled I think. Yeah. So that would have gone on for some months after the actual um, shootings. Yeah I'm trying to think of when it was. I think he handed his in pretty quickly because obviously it was just a matter of finding the time because they had different places, different, a lot of information, a lot of things that we had to um, kind of organise especially because his guns were in Timaru, they weren't in Christchurch, so we had to go and get them so that he could um, trade them in. Um, yeah, I can't even remember when that was. Like, it felt like it happened pretty quickly, but it might not have. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's good. That's a very interesting story. Mm. Thank you very much. Right. 
Um, so you went on working in the same retail establishment at the tannery? Uh, no, I actually left that job, must have even been, it would have been less than a month after that, and then I went into another retail job anyway. Um, but yeah, I was only at that job for another month or so, not very long. So, anything else about that period of time that you'd like to say? Uh, not that I can think of, no. So let's move on now to the focus, <laughs> to which COVID is COVID-19 and the impacts of the lockdown period. Mm -hmm. um, so, can you tell me a bit about what it was like for you mm -hmm. as we went into level three for a few days and then really into level four for yeah. a number of weeks? What yeah. did that mean for you? Um, so for me, I actually, I think they announced level three, it was my day off and it was a Monday and then it was going to be on the Tuesday that level four started. So I actually didn't have to go to work at all during that time period. Um, and the transition, I think, so, so my husband was an essential worker, so he worked at a supermarket, so for him it was... It's just him, he was just hectic, he was just flat out the entire time. Um, for me, that change from level three to level four was my job, so my company that I worked for kind of was scrambling. Um, they didn't know what was happening, what was going on, they didn't know the future of anything that was going to go on. Um, so they yeah, tried to give as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, which I don't know was necessarily the right move. But yeah, that's probably how that worked for me in terms of that transition period. Like there wasn't much difference for level three to level four for me. So now you're in level four. Mm -hmm. You're not an essential worker. No. So it was yeah, so my husband and our flatmate and myself were in our bubble. My flatmate also didn't have to he wasn't an essential worker. Um I think for us, and I think for me especially, for my husband being an essential worker, I think that kind of created a bit of normality, knowing that he had to go to work and then he would be home a certain time. Um, for me personally, my company that I worked for had sent me a letter on the Friday of that first week, um, basically making me redundant. And the email had said we'll discuss further of what was going to happen on Monday and I scrambled I was like okay we a don't know how long we're going to be in level four for b I don't know how much like what my redundancy package is or if I even get a redundancy package and I was like trying to think of what my insurance was because I knew I had income protection but I didn't know what it meant and so like I spent like my weekend absolutely freaking out, being like, I don't know how we're gonna survive this financially. I was like, we've got a house. I was like, I can't not have money. <laughs> um, so I did all of my like crossing my T's and dotting my eyes and finding out all of the information, and then I got a call that following Monday, being like, actually, we're not gonna make you redundant. We're just gonna see what happens. We'll get the you'll get the package that the government had released and. Um, that's something that we'll reassess later on. <laughs> yeah, so that wasn't particularly nice. <laughs> and it was kind of a, that probably, um, to be honest, I hadn't been happy in my job 
basically since I started. It wasn't a, I guess, a harmonious relationship in any sense of the word. But it, that for me was kind of like the final nail in the coffin. I was like, this proves what you feel about me. This proves what you think about what I'm doing for your stores. I, yeah, I kind of had to start going into self-preservation mode and survival mode. So what did it mean for you in practical terms? You went on to what we'd call the wage subsidy. Yeah. They applied for a subsidy. Yeah. They didn't make their staff redundant. Mm -hmm. So you got the wage subsidy, which yeah. was a subsidy on your earnings. And did yeah. you get the same? I did not get the same amount of money. No. Okay. So in terms of what I got, I think I actually just got what the government provided. So... Because originally they had discussed in terms of everybody taking like a 20% pay cut so that everybody could still get paid. And then they decided, oh no, we've got the wage subsidy, so we'll just pay you the wage subsidy. And I remember myself and one of the managers from another store, she contacted me and she's like, I don't think this is right. Like I don't, and because everything is so confusing and I think in terms of like policies and legislature and everything like that, I think way out of my depth. But... I was like, it, it just something just didn't kind of sit right, um, and it felt really rushed and panicked. And I think, especially as being one of the people that received a letter of saying I'm being made redundant, I was kind of, it's disheartened anyway. So I was kind of like, but then I had a conversation. Like I guess the bonus was that my husband was an essential worker; he was still earning his full income. We could still. And then my flatmate was also very fortunate and his company that he was working for at the time um, paid him his full wage the entire time. So we were very fortunate in that sense that we still had income coming in from him especially and that we were able to make it through. Um, and obviously you couldn't go anywhere so you couldn't spend any money anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of one of those um, really had to reassess what our financial situation was and what we could and what we could live on. And how that would look yeah so how long did the wage subsidy go on for you so I think I had it the entire time so definitely had it all the way through level four and then level three became a little bit different um, so at that time I was actually managing two stores one of the stores um, we had no access to because it was a part of a center and we couldn't get into it because the center itself was closed and wouldn't open until it was at least level two. The other store opened in level three. It was in the Colombo Mall, but it was Monday to Friday and it was nine till three. And that was it. You couldn't do anything more outside of that because obviously the, the mall itself was losing money. Um, so I got my wage subsidy and then any extra hours that I worked. So I basically went back to my full pay after that. So, yeah. And I think I still got it up until I left that job. Anyway, I'm pretty sure. So at a certain point, you left the job that you were in at the time we went into level three and then level four. Mm -hmm. And this was after you were back at level two. Two. Yeah, so we actually went back on my birthday, which was level two, so May 14th, we were back into the stores operating. Both the stores. Yeah, operating as normal as we could. Um, and then I must have been, I, having known what they wanted for me, because they wanted to disestablish my role, 
Um, because I was the only one in the company that was a dual store manager. Everybody else was just a single store manager. So I could understand from a business perspective why my role came under the axe. I think obviously knowing their personal feelings about me, I guess was just a bonus <laughs> for them to kind of get rid of me. Um, but I had to have a really hard conversation with my husband and I said, I don't think I can work for them anymore. I was like, I don't think they value what I bring to that company. I don't think they respect me. I think it's ridiculous that, like, I literally felt like I went to work with an axe over my head the entire time, not knowing at whatever point that they might drop it and get rid of me. And I said, I would much rather take the control of that and be like, no, I don't. I don't want to work for you anymore because I don't want to live with that uncertainty. Thankfully, my husband was very kind and very supportive of that. Um, and we had been really fortunate in the sense that we had saved a bit of money. So we probably had about three months worth of savings to last us to help me find a job. But thankfully, um, I managed to find a job within a week of finishing my last job. So, so you gave your notice mm -hmm. and left yeah. and then used the time to look for other jobs yeah. and so had you had you sussed out possibilities before um, you no <laughs> to be honest I had and I kind of threw caution to the wind I'm kind of one of those people once I've made a decision in my head it's kind of that's it you can't really argue with me on it um I was very fortunate in the sense that I had talked to my auntie about what was going on and she knew the work environment that I'd been in she works in the retail industry as well so she's a very um knowledgeable person to kind of have in your corner and she said to me she's like hey I could probably get you a job and I was like oh okay sure I didn't think anything of it and then um she's like what I'll do is I'll get you to meet with your with the regional manager and they'll just have a conversation there's nothing there but if there is something we can work something out and I was like okay and I'd been applying for every job I've been applying for like pickers and warehouses I've, any type of I was like cleaners carers anything like I, I was like I'm we figured out what was the minimum that I could earn for us to survive and I just applied for anything I was like at this point I don't know what I want to do so who cares let's just give me a job and then so I met with the regional manager of my current place and she said to me so look sorry at the moment I don't have anything um would love to have you though but as soon as anything arrives we'll definitely be in touch with you and then literally the next week I got a phone call being like we've got a job for you if you want to so it was all very fortuitous and I'm very thankful to my auntie who was able to pull some strings for me. I know that I'm very fortunate in that situation. Not everybody has that. But yeah. So you started, was it still in May or was it in June? It was in June. So I, my last day at my previous job that I was with, during lockdown, my last day was, must have been like the 1st of June, and then I started my new job on the 15th of June. So I literally, I resigned, I had a week, and then that was it. <laughs> and that's where you're still working now? That is still where I'm now, yeah. And you enjoy that job more? Well, I mean, I definitely enjoy it more. Um, I think it's a whole other tangent, to be honest, it's a different, it's... I definitely like working for them more than I did for my other company. Yeah. And 
how was working that job? Was it in any way affected by us going to level two or not? My current job? Yes. Um, yeah, so it was a retail store job as well. So obviously working in any type of retail store, we had just a lot more like QR codes everywhere, a lot more cleanliness, so cleaning everything, a lot of hand sanitizer, um, making sure that you're keeping distances and things like that. We fit a lot of suits, so obviously not being able to actually physically put suits onto people and stuff like that. But other than that, it was relatively normal. It was kind of like back to square one, really. So a question about you know managing the COVID mm -hmm. contagion aspects mm -hmm. in a clothing store, mm -hmm. You know, was there concern about surfaces and actual clothing and how one tried to minimise yeah. contagion in an environment where people are putting clothes on their bodies, yeah. taking them off and touching lots of surfaces? I guess a lot of that came down to trust. You had to trust that people who were coming, A, into your store were healthy <laughs> and that they didn't have any symptoms of anything whatsoever. Um, but we, in terms of what we could control, unfortunately with clothes people need to try them on. Um, it's not, it's a hard thing, you can't really get around that. Um, but in terms of everything else, we always made sure that there was hand sanitizer available for everybody. We always made sure that, we, so we would do a pretty thorough clean morning, noon and night. And so that would be like antibacterial wipes of everything that anybody could touch. It was, um, if we really wanted to, we could have had like PPE if we needed it. Um, none of us felt that we really needed it, to be honest. And then obviously just adhering to the rules, like keeping two metres distance. Um, if you were sick, go home. Um, don't come to work, anything like that. But majority of it did rely solely on the customers and what they felt comfortable with. And also knowing that they're all in the same boat as us and we're doing, if we were sick, we'd hope that they'd respect that we went home and the same thing if they were sick, we'd like them to go home. But it's, yeah, it was kind of a hard thing to kind of control. So for you as a manager in that environment, were there any particular challenges for you in terms of managing people's time off and substitutes? No, um, I think because I work for a bigger company now, there's always a lot more people to kind of pull on. If I was in my previous place, which was a small boutique, it's a lot harder because you've got less people and less people willing to pick up extra shifts because they had children or they were caring for somebody or anything like that. But um, at our current workplace, no, it was kind of one of those things that was pretty easy to kind of navigate. And I think um, we were really fortunate in the sense we had the supportive head office who so were like, no, go home. And also we weren't as busy either. So that obviously allows for people to be home and you can operate on less staff and things like that as well. So... Oh, no, it wasn't that difficult. And in the place you work now, which is this larger mm. company, there haven't been any redundancies or changes in um, the organisation of stuff? Not that I know of, <laughs> if I'm being honest. In terms of at a store level, no. Um, I think, because I think, especially when you work with such a big company, people who, like for me personally, coming into the business, nothing affected in terms of what my role was or in terms of my pay or anything like that. I do know that for them during the lockdown and things like that, they did have differences with their pay, but I think that was the case for most places. Um, but no redundancies. And I think the other thing is because a lot of our staff base are casual anyway, 
it didn't really affect anything. Like we didn't have to pay them if they weren't working. So not that I know of, and I don't think in terms of head office, I don't think there was any redundancies or they did relatively well. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Well, that's a really good story. Thank you. About your experiences in your previous place of work, the yeah. wage subsidy, going mm. back, and then moving into your mm. current employment and making your decisions about yeah. it. We haven't spoken very much mm. about what life was like under oh, lockdown. Okay. <laughs> your partner was an essential worker. Yeah. Your other flatmate had um, his salary yeah. coming through but mm -hmm. was not physically at work. Mm -hmm. And you were at home in a time when we were supposed to be mm -hmm. staying so, at home. So yeah. what was it like for you in that bubble, over, particularly over that level four oh. period of time when... Um, it was strange. <laughs> like I don't think um, there's any other way to kind of describe it like it's such a weird phenomenon to be a part of um, but for me I personally enjoy it <laughs> I like being by myself and I, and I think because I work in such a social job it was quite nice for me to kind of have the time to myself like how often can you as I guess an adult say that you had four weeks of no work like at all like it's such a rare thing to kind of experience um, I think for me, in terms of during that time period, it was, um, I actually asked my sister, who's very big into like meditation and things like that, my anxiety, I suffer from an anxiety disorder, so for me it was quite stressful, obviously given the situation with my previous employer, <laughs> saying that, hey, you might not have a job, um, and I was kind of like, well, okay, I need to just focus on myself, and so my sister gave me... So I got into yoga. <laughs> I did a lot of walking with my dog. So we were very fortunate with the weather. So that, like, I think that also made a massive improvement as well. If it was like grey and miserable and rainy, I don't know if I would think about it so fondly. But um, I think, yeah, it was kind of just focusing on things. I had a um, quarantine to do list. So things I wanted to do, so things that I don't usually get the time to do, so like cleaning the garage, cleaning rubbish bins, um, gardening, cleaning the house, organising rooms and throwing things out and reorganising my wardrobe and all the stuff that you really want to do but you never have the time to do. Um, so I did that a lot through lockdown and I think for me my big thing was because obviously I knew how stressful my husband's job was. My job was to try and make the home as calming for him as a, as I wanted it to be. So making sure like dinners were ready for him, that um, he came home and that he could just go straight into the shower and not have to worry about anything, that he could just come home, everything was here. Um, I was also really fortunate having um, our flatmate there because I personally didn't feel particularly comfortable going to the supermarket. It was quite a weird experience. So he used to go to the supermarket for us quite a lot, which was really helpful because I, I don't think I went to the... I actually didn't go to the supermarket until we were in level three again because I was just like, I don't want to go. I don't feel comfortable going <laughs> and especially not going by myself. <laughs> um, but in terms of life in itself, I would highly suggest doing it every year, <laughs> having four solid weeks of not working. Um, and I think just having that time, I guess, to reevaluate, like, what am I actually doing? What? Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And just focusing on myself and what I can control was probably the big thing, yeah. What about contact with family and friends? Yeah, so I definitely 
to be fair, my family's usually pretty good. We keep in touch with each other quite frequently anyway. Um, it was quite strange because obviously my brother lives in Sydney, so he was in Australia, so he, their set of rules were completely different to what we were going through. And my sister was actually in Perth at the time as well. <laughs> so she also had a whole other different set of rules. Um, and then my sister, my other sister was in Wellington and she had just two kids. So it was all kind of, we always made sure that we were kind of checking in with each other and that um, we were constantly talking. And we did that, to be honest, we do that anyway. It's, I think in terms of, it was probably a little bit more frequent than what we usually do, but it wasn't something that was kind of out of the ordinary. But um, I think especially once we went into level three where we could extend our bubbles, I was really thankful to be able to go and see like my mum and dad and have them in my bubble and then mum and dad being able to come and see us and things like that. Um, just having that change of scenery was quite nice to kind of be able to break out of the house and not just talk to the dog during the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of like families and friends and stuff like that, it was also like one of my best friends, she works in the tourism industry, so she's a commercial travel agent. And so she had a lot of uncertainty around her job and what was going to happen with her. And so it was just making sure, keeping in touch with her to make sure that she was okay and if there was anything that we could do or anything like that. I think it was just kind of a good opportunity, and especially because there was nothing else that you could do, it was nice to just kind of catch up and reconnect with people and see how they were and what was going on and how they were handling everything, I guess. Yeah. So did you do that mainly by friend, by, by, by um, your contact with your friends and family? Was mm -hmm. that phone, digital, what combinations? Um, digital. So usually, so I know with like my best friends, we are usually like on Snapchat or like Facebook Messenger, we're constantly talking to each other every day. Anyway, with family, it was a lot of FaceTiming um, or video messaging on Facebook because just being able to see another face is always quite nice. Um, and if not, it would always just be like calling, texting, and would always um, we always send like photos. So like we've got a family group chat, two separate ones, one that includes my dad and one that doesn't. <laughs> I don't know why, but there would be like different photos and things like that about like what we were doing. Um, so I kind of really got to get into cooking because I don't usually have the time to cook at all. Um, so being able to show them, like, oh look, this is what I've done. Um, I'm actually the best chef in the family now, so just be prepared and kind of things like that. I think, yeah, it was mainly digital though. And then obviously with the grandparents as well, it was also just making sure that we checked in with them via text, phone, anywhere that we could really, yeah. So where are your grandparents? Matter, matter. So they're in the Waikato, which had a big, Outbreak. <laughs> and they, um, my granddad, he, he's, he's one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life and one of the most sensible, but he can also be so stupid. But he's obviously, because he's over 80, he's in a very vulnerable group, but he still said that he could go to the supermarket. And like we were like, Frank, you can't go to the supermarket. Like, just get somebody else to do it for you. Like, there's the people are offering to do it for you. Like, so that got a wee bit frustrating, and I know that got frustrating for mum, but um, yeah, I think just in terms of communicating, our family kind of does it naturally anyway, so it just kind of ramped up a little bit more, just to check in on everybody. So thinking about this COVID time and these series of alert levels and mm -hmm. moving back and through them, mm -hmm. was there anything that you planned to do 
that you weren't able to do because yeah. of the COVID-19 restrictions? Yeah, so we were supposed to actually go on a family holiday with my husband's family in August to Australia, which obviously got cancelled because we can't go there. Um, and then that was kind of our big trip. And then also my best friend was supposed to get married. I actually think she was supposed to get married this week. But obviously, and she's in Melbourne. So for her as well, like, it, like there was a lot of, I guess, like big events that we didn't get to go to. Um, and it kind of just made you reassess. I think on the grand, like in the grand scheme of things, it was nothing major it wasn't anything detrimental or anything that can't be rescheduled i do feel for my friend whose wedding has had to be pushed um because i know that that's a lot of planning and a big thing to kind of have shifted but it's also on the other side it's not like you're the only one a lot of people have been in the same boat and it's kind of having that respect and understanding that this is such a unforeseen like foreseeable thing like nobody could have predicted this so it's kind of doing the best that you can with the situation you've got, yeah. So has your friend rescheduled or has she just postponed? It has been rescheduled to next year in April um, for Easter, but obviously it depends on what happens with Melbourne, <laughs> whether or not, because then it's also that whole thing of the quarantining. So when my sister came home from Perth, she obviously had to do her two weeks quarantine and then she's just recently gone back to Australia, so she had to do another two weeks quarantine over there. But it's one of those things where if it's now extending a trip instead of it being a weekend, it's now going to be like a three-week, four-week trip that you can't really afford to do. So it kind of depends on what happens, in, I guess, in this part to decide whether or not we can go and what actually happens because... You just can't afford it. You need to be able to work and be able to pay for it. I can't take four weeks off. Just can't get paid. <laughs> yeah. So those things have affected you. Yeah. You see them affecting a lot of other people. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's... Um, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to kind of describe it. I think I'm a... Because it's... Like, you can't really blame anybody or blame anything for what's happened. And it's, I don't think there's any point wasting energy on there, on what you can't control. And especially in terms of like this situation, it's like nobody could have seen this happening. Like there's just no, there's no way. If somebody had a crystal ball and could have predicted this happening, then I think everybody would have been in a better situation. But given the hands that we were dealt, it's, um, it's just a matter of what... It just is what it is. You can't, I'm probably really not, yeah, I, don't, I personally don't feel affected by it. I do feel sorry for other people, but I don't, yeah, it just is what it is. Mm. So should we move now to looking at um, the area of support? Mm -hmm. uh, so the question I had was, you know, who or what mm -hmm. has been most helpful to you as you've mm -hmm. lived through this period of unexpected change and yeah. challenge and opportunity in some mm. ways like your four weeks of yeah. not being in paid work yeah um I guess in terms of support and things like that having that time it kind of allowed you to reconnect with your friends and kind of um re like 
reevaluate your relationships and what you're actually wanting to get from people, like not what you're wanting to get from people, but what you're wanting from the relationship and what you feel is working and what you feel isn't. I'm really lucky that the people that I have in my life are people that I've had in my life for a very long time. Um, but it was, yeah, it was nice to kind of be able to reconnect. So I definitely think my friends were a massive support for me. Um, and I'd like to think that I was a massive support for them as well. Obviously, um, like my two best friends known each other forever and for us being like the same age kind of having the same understanding in terms of what's going on I guess and what impacts us directly um my husband is a formidable force I honestly I don't know how he did it he is one of the most hard-working individuals I've ever had the pleasure of knowing in my life so having him in my corner the entire way through is massive um, and I think it kind of it did it probably tested our relationship a little bit um, especially when I made the decision that I wanted to quit <laughs> um, like, but knowing that we could get through this and what we could what we can do was really important um, and my family I think I'm very much who I am today because of my family we've gone through a lot I guess as a family as well so we've got quite a unique um, bond and I'd like to say that we're a really close family and I think especially for us siblings I'm the youngest so we all kind of have like this protective nature over each other and especially when you're apart like my mum hates it she hates that we all live in different parts of the world and she always describes it as like one of the limbs has been chopped off um, when we're not here so like knowing that there's a way for us to still be connected without being physically near each other I think was huge and I I do have to give a big kudos to my sister who was really helpful in terms of my um like anxiety and giving me help through that well both of my sisters actually were really helpful in terms of that and what to focus on and how to kind of cope with what was going on so yeah 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 that sounds good. Yeah, um, I was really fortunate. Yes, so that's that's a very detailed and very useful answer to that question. What do you think could be done to make things better for mm. other young women in Christchurch who've had these experiences of quakes and yeah. mosque shootings and yeah. now levels of lockdown, which are shared with other people in yeah. the country, but are experienced uniquely by yeah. everyone? I think um, Christchurch in general, I think given everything that has happened in this city, are incredibly resilient. Um, it's it's a really interesting community to be a part of, especially as uh, I don't consider myself a Cantabrian at all. <laughs> but being a part of like Christchurch and especially being part of all of these, I guess, monumental events, it kind of you can't help but appreciate this community. It's incredible what they go through and what they do for each other. I think in terms of what can be done if a situation like this was to ever happen again, which I hope it doesn't. Um, you know, I actually don't know. Like, I think we were pretty fortunate in terms of the leadership that we had from the government. It was all very clear and it was all, I guess, the decisions were very thought through and were really well explained to everybody. But I think it's kind of having those groups, like maybe the more vulnerable people, like how can we help? them like what can we do to provide support and safety for them and um in situations like that i think um 
especially I know just with a lot of my friends and a lot of the people that I've worked with especially around anxiety and things like that obviously there's a lot of like apps and a lot of reading material and things like that that people have but I think having those is a real big push to be like this is a really good time to focus on your mental health and your well-being and what's positive and what works for you and not being obviously I'm a big control freak so it is really hard to not be in control of a situation <laughs> um, and especially something as big as this but I think yeah just making sure that there's that support available for people and I don't know how you do that but that would probably be the only advice that I would like to see going forward if this was to happen again. So that would be particularly in that mental health oh, support yeah. area where yeah. it was people who was known to them, people, people yeah. who are friends and family knowing yeah. how to respond, yeah. how to listen, yeah. how to be responsive when yeah. people talk about having yeah. those issues in their lives. Yeah, I know that I'm really fortunate. So my older sister, she's actually a psychologist, so she's obviously knows mental health very well um, and I'm really fortunate that I already knew kind of steps that I needed to do but being able to have that support that I could draw on from nearby um, I also think just thinking about it now another thing that would have been really helpful is I guess a bit more of like a layman's terms around like the wage subsidy and how that actually works and things like that and I think especially for us younger people if they're wanting us like even just in terms of politics in general like having a bit more of a clearer understanding I think it's very easy to kind of get disoriented by the smoke and mirrors of everything that was going on and because it was a lot to take on it would be nice to kind of have like bullet points <laughs> being like this is what's happening this is how it works this is what you need to know and this is what concerns you like I know I was really fortunate because my sister is a sole practitioner so she's self-employed so she but she's also an employee so she had to do both sides of it, so she kind of explained it to me. Not very clearly, but she explained it better to me than anybody else could. But I think there needed to be a bit more clarity around that in terms of making it really simple. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That's good. Thank you. That That's sort of coming from your own experience, but also yeah. thinking about what might be yeah. important for going forward. Going forward. Yeah. So, um, the questions I had were sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, what needs to, you know, what needs to happen and how could it happen? And mm -hmm. you, there are limits to all the hows, mm -hmm. but you've given some examples of the hows that worked yeah, for you and that yeah. you think could be useful. Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I don't want to think I'm being self-indulgent and thinking it's things that would actually <laughs> help me, yeah. but... I think, um, yeah, I think being a part of, I guess, this age group and having been through what I've been through, or we have been through, in terms of like that, I think you kind of have a bit more perspective on everything. You kind of think about things a little bit more, I guess, and how it impacts other people and what can help other people and how it all works. So, yeah, I think it's been an interesting year. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We've covered quite a spectrum of topics and experiences, yeah. but is there something that's relevant to this 2020 year and what's happened in it that somehow has slipped between the cracks and we haven't uh, discussed? 
I don't know, I think with the year 2020, I think everybody had a lot of optimism about this year. I just hope that people haven't lost that optimism given everything that has happened. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's helpful <laughs> to kind of get closed in in terms of the things that we can't do. And I think we're, and as a country in general, we're very fortunate in terms of the situation that we've found ourselves in. Like, we could be in such a worse place than everybody else, but I think, um, no, I think 2020 has been an interesting year. I think it's been an evolution <laughs> year. It's allowed people to kind of reassess how things work and how things should work, which I think it can only be positive. Like, I know a lot of my friends um, who work in offices and things like that, having a lot more flexibility and getting a better work-life balance and people actually wanting to have conversations around mental health and things like that. I, I just hope people don't discount the positive things that have also come from something so catastrophic, I guess. Yeah. That's a very good point on which mm. to end. Thank you so no, much for giving your time you. and coming all the way out to University right. of Canterbury from Lincoln. Listen to more stories from Making the Most of Now on Plains FM 96.9, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 5pm. And get the podcast at plainsfm.org.nz, Spotify and Apple Podcasts.